Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and living like a VR hermit. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing good, Joe. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. We've been, uh, we've been plugging away at FM Comparison the last couple of weeks. We had a pretty good discussion in the last episode and then kind of turned that into a design meeting a couple of days later and came up with a kind of a new direction based on what we talked about. So we ended up, I don't know what ended up is the right term, but <laughs> where we are now is a very different place than where we were two weeks ago with in terms of how the the app looks and flows. It's similar to what we had, but it's much more it's much more like um you know Evernote or Apple Notes or a traditional three column interface where you've got a a a list view driving a list view driving a detail view, which is also a list view. So we basically have a master, master, master detail view. But <laughs> the last one is actually the same screen. Um, and and previously we had a list view driving a list view driving a detail view that was also a list view. But the the things that we're trying to accomplish in each of those is different. Yeah, I think I think the biggest difference is the middle section previously was a an AG grid or a table, HTML table that was kind of the prominent portion of the app and then the detail section was kind of an inspector thing off to the side and we've kind of shifted those two in terms of prominence where now the the what was previously the the grid is now an item list it's just a single column list view of items and you can select one or more of those to show one or more items in the detail region which is now you know a full 60% of the screen you know barring any user resizing and then the idea that Dave had of kind of putting those each of those objects that show up in the detail area, put them in a, a nicely formatted card in their own con- kind of containerized object so they look like distinct units. Um, so it's all, you know, there's stuff there. It's enough to, to work on and get an idea for how it works, but obviously it still needs a ton of work. I'm generally pleased with the where that direction is going. I'm mm-hmm. curious about your thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I mostly like it. I think it's a lot easier to navigate. There's still some stuff I need to do to make it a little easier to stay on the keyboard yeah. for users who want to stay on the keyboard. But the, I think this design, from a technical standpoint, simplifies the app because we don't need AG Grid anymore, which is a really powerful tool, but also kind of a clumsy one. And a, it's a big dependency and yeah. it it didn't stylistically blend in with the rest of the bootstrap view stuff that we're doing so i was going to have some work to do to try to make those things look like they belong in the same window and now i don't have to do that work at least for this app um the the detail view is the part that i think is the coolest so when you select a single row in the item it just loads a detail view like you would expect normally but if you select two rows or five rows, it basically loads that same view in a list view that you can scroll, which is, you know, you can't really do that in FileMaker, not without <laughs> some pretty complicated stuff. Um, it, I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty neat how that works. It, it's not really synced up. Like the scroll position in one doesn't affect the scroll position in the other. Oh and no! We're going to have to add some paging behavior in the coming weeks as we start to deal with bigger and bigger data sets. But I think at its core, it's a much simpler way to find your way into the app because you you you're starting with a category on the side. So I'm looking for fields. You go straight to fields. You load your list of fields, and you know what ones you're looking for. You can scroll straight to in the list, or you can use some sorting and filtering stuff to maybe drill down to a specific table and. You know, I just want fields in this table to check for diffs and then select the ones you want to look at and work with. So I think it's it's going to be a lot quicker to navigate rather than horizontally 
scrolling the middle region or just visually horizontally scanning the middle region for additional details. I think just having the two simplified lists, the, you know, the categories and the items, is just going to make a, uh, what's, the, what's the term? It's going to enable cognitive easing quite a bit more. <laughs> well, I, I think one of your earlier comments is one of the most important pieces is that the new design dedicates most of the screen real estate to the part of the interface where you'll be spending most of your time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about finding the one record you want to look at. It's about looking at a large batch of changes and being able to see what actually shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge help to user. So, yes, it's, it's going pretty well so far. There's a lot of work to do in each of those sections, but now that we got it kind of, you know, sectioned out into these big picture features, I was able to go through and create a bunch of issues on our shared project and just start penciling in some of the functionality, some to-do lists, and then each of those become kind of their own discussion board that Dave is not shy about populating at one o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> and you're not shy about populating at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> at so. a reasonable time. <laughs> reasonable time. <laughs> Neither of us work at reasonable times, Joe. Neither of us. That's true. That's definitely true. Yeah, there there have been days lately where I'm, you know, I start work at five and I basically work straight through until around, you know, 10 or 11 and then I'm done for the day. Like, you know, barring any client emails or issues, I'm done. So yeah, um, something else that we started working on is progress bars, which are going to be on the configuration screen. So it's a different view than the one we just talked about with three columns. This is kind of a the place that you land when you first fire up the app, where you pick, you select your DDR files, you get some metadata about those, and then you can apply some additional configuration options that we haven't really worked out yet. Um, you know, tweak some settings, and then click a button that's called Begin Comparison, which will take the two diffs and start running through all of the backend code to actually create all of the data that the application is going to load. And Dave wanted some progress bars for those. Uh, one for when you're picking a diff. When, so when I pick a diff, it fires off a bunch of code that parses that diff to see if it's valid, among other things. So, you know, theoretically I could hand you a corrupted DDR and you can tell me that back pretty quickly so I know that I selected the wrong thing or I select the same file twice and you've got an error for that. Um, but you've got a progress indicator for those on the button that just, you know, a little spinning thing that says, hey, this is thinking. But we also added some progress bars to the bottom that are just based on a, per a percent of completion and you can feed it that. So we added one for the old DDR or the original DDR and the new DDR and one for the comparison, which is a bigger process. And Dave wired up the back end of that stuff and had some incoming messages that I can then, I'm not even sure the right terminology, I guess commit to the store um, from those incoming messages. It's kind of a weird series of actions where Something, something happens in the back end. I have no idea what. A function is called in the incoming messages JavaScript file. That calls an action in the Vuex store. The Vuex action calls a mutation in the Vuex store. And the mutation sets data in the state in the Vuex store. And then the <laughs> getters render the state as the data that's going to be shown in the UI. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it sounds really complicated. And honestly, code-wise, it's a little bit complicated. But the cool part about it is that it makes sure that even if you have multiple asynchronous processes running in different sections of the interface, that <clears throat> A always happens before B. Mm -hmm. That a complete process, if I need, if, if as part of one process, I need to update five values in the store, all five of those get updated before the next 
commit occurs. And so it gives me very, uh, gives us very atomic data editing capability, mm -hmm. which is really kind of cool. The code overhead is a little high, but I also really like the fact that it effectively enforces a data separation model. Yeah. Like you have to completely separate the data and build an API for it. And then that's the only safe way to access that data is through that API. And the, even though there's a little bit of overhead, I really like the end result personally. Yeah. I've, I've gotten used to it in my head. Yeah. I need to spend some more time with it, but it was, it's definitely, it's easy to miss one of those links in the chain and not have anything working, but also not really have any, any idea why it's not working because Mm. There's yeah, it just yeah. There's nothing. There's no error or anything. It just you forgot to create something. So yeah, yeah. it kind of reminds me of optionals in Swift. Yeah, when you first start working with optionals, they're nothing but a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. Just constantly, you're bumping into this. Oh no, this is an optional. You have to account for this, and it drives you nuts. And then you eventually go, wait, this is actually saving me a ton of effort. Yeah. But you have to get to the point of seeing how this is actually making your life easier. I still think one of the big reasons that FM perception for Windows is so stable is because FM perception for Mac was written in Swift. Because... In Swift, I had to account for the optionals every time. And though the code is subtly different on Windows for doing that, I'd already written all that code. So for the most part, I was doing line-by-line -line code conversions between the two platforms. And so uh, Windows got all of that protection basically for free. Yeah, you figured out all of the logical issues in one place. Yeah, well, Swift forced me mm -hmm. to account for all of those. I love progress bars. I, I really do. There's something so satisfying about an asynchronous process that updates something on screen, particularly a big, complicated, time-consuming one. Like, it'd be perfect if everything was so fast that we didn't need progress bars, mm -hmm. but we don't live in that world. And so, yeah, it's just when I do a process and see the progress bar updating, it makes me very happy. It did result in kind of a weird progress bar ping pong game that we were playing mm -hmm. where <clears throat> I wrote the basic code that generated the message. Like Joe put progress bars on screen, but they weren't wired to anything. So we had the space set aside. And then I wrote the code that generated all of these progress bar messages, but there was nothing in the interface that actually responded to any of those messages. So I'm looking at log lines and debug code to make sure that that stuff is working relatively well. And then Joe connects that stuff through into the store so that it's all actually updating. And then now I actually have to make sure that it's working right in all the cases. You know, somebody cancels a process or whatever like that. And so this one feature just kind of shifted back and forth between us, mm -hmm. um, including one spot where one of the processes can just update the progress by saying, uh, you know, x equals x plus one. And at no point did I say x equals zero. So if you ran the process over and over again, the percentage completion was climbing into the two to three hundreds. Um, now, this is literally the first bug I ever remember writing in my entire life. Not this code, but the first bug that I had to really chase down and is frozen in my memory was not properly setting a start value for something that did X plus one. Yeah. And so I really feel really dumb every time I make that mistake because I'm usually really good about it. That day, not so much. Yeah, I do it in FileMaker scripts all the time. Or like forget the starting value for the second pass through a parent loop of a child loop or something like that. All of a sudden you're just looping over the same thing forever. So it's kind of the opposite problem, but yeah. Um, so I ended up writing kind of my own 
progress tracking class that kind of says, okay, there's kind of two loops that we support. There's an outer loop that um, spits off progress messages and little status text messages. And then an inner loop that just says, okay, we're inside one of these large sections. Now let's go ahead and, and, and just move the bar a little bit as we're like, oh, we're parsing fields right now. Well, I don't need the progress bar to, or I don't need to inform the user about the name of every field that's being parsed, but I would like the progress bar to move a little bit if one of these processes is long. So far, the one that seems to consume the most time is layouts, because there's layouts, layout parts, and layout objects, and that's a recursive parsing function, because layout op layouts have child parts, parts have child objects, and then objects have child objects, and so it has to just keep drilling deeper and deeper and deeper until it actually finds all the individual moving parts of a layout. Um, and so I don't want the progress bar to just stick at parsing layouts and not move for 30 seconds. But the problem there is that, as I described, some of these sections take a lot longer than other sections. And as I've currently written it, I don't have really good support for kind of weighting the progress bar, for saying layouts is actually going to take 40% of the time. So let's make it 40% of the progress bar. Because in a perfect world, I want a relatively consistent um, uh, momentum to the progress bar. If it sticks anywhere, it starts concerning users or they're wondering what it's doing right then, that kind of thing. So um, the progress tracking class that I wrote really doesn't have support for that kind of thing. What I wish I could use is Apple has a class in Coco called NS Progress. And it's kind of a UI independent progress tracking class that you can wire a progress bar to and it'll take care of all of the updates. And that's nice, but the part that I really want access to is it itself can be kind of recursively structured where a progress thing can be composed of multiple smaller progress things. And you can just tell it kind of independently how much of the process each of these individual steps should take. And those themselves can be composed of smaller and smaller progress indicators which doesn't sound helpful until you've written this once yourself, trying to do all of this, and having it not work the way you want it. Um, progress is obnoxiously complicated. So what you could say is, okay, well, the big process is composed of 17 stages, but one of those stages should be weighted to be 40% of the list. But that process is actually composed of six stages, and the fourth one of those should be 20% of the process. And then you just say, this individual progress item, this child of a child of a child, you just start sending updates to that thing, and those updates percolate all the way up the chain so that the parent item knows how much of the progress of all of its children has been completed. And, like, right now I have spots where I have to say, okay, well, when we're doing layouts, we're at stage 15. And if I insert a process between 15 and 14, I have to renumber them all. Um, with NS Progress, you just insert a thing into the middle because it doesn't care how many pieces are there. Everything just percolates. Um, it's really slick, but I want as much of this code to be cross-platform as possible. And so I don't want to use that on Mac and then still have to write it on Windows. What I really, really, really shouldn't do is write my own implementation that's cross-platform. But I know me, yeah, and it sounds like an interesting little project, <laughs> and I'm probably going to do it anyway. Yep. 
Because it's not, it's not where my time should be right now, but it's where my brain is. I mean, you could justify it as another project, like make a little progress bar widget that you can then turn into a FileMaker plugin and feed <laughs> it with data. Well, I mean, I don't necessarily want to go too far. And the cool thing about NS Progress is that it doesn't actually care about UI. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm... Yeah. So, there's, so there's no C-sharp equivalent of... I hunted around and couldn't find one. Then again, you start looking for progress-related stuff, and most people uh, are talking about progress bars mm-hmm. and trying to find kind of a generic, abstract progress tracker wasn't uh, finding me anything. If I have an update on this in the future, it means I wrote my own. Yep. Sorry. And as part of this was also kind of wiring up the thing to be able to spit out text updates. You know, sending someone a text, like, what is it working on right now? So that, for example, when you get into one of those slow spots and it's dealing with layouts, let me tell the user we're dealing with layouts right now. And they can say, oh, yeah, this system has lots and lots and lots of really complicated layouts. It makes sense that this part is slower. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm spitting out those messages uh, as of yesterday into a void, much like the progress bar updates were into a void. And I think Joe's been working on writing something to catch those. Yeah, this morning I got something working. Basically, goes through the same process again of getting the incoming messages to commit the data to the store and then making some getters to bind some UI objects on the configuration screen. And right now it's basically a a bootstrap view card with a header with a single line of text and a button you can use to disclose the body. So the body is hidden by default and you hit the button and it'll show a table with a row for each item in that list that you sent me. So you're sending me a single string many times, and I'm I'm catching that and putting it into an array of strings and then feeding that array of strings to the table for display, which was seemed like the easiest way to do it. I thought about just concatenating all the stuff, but that didn't really leave. That just left you with one blob of text and kind of limited the formatting options where being able to highlight a, a single line of text would be easier in the tables. So that's working. It, you can get stuff on the screen now. It's not pretty. And I've got a lot of other ideas of stuff to try. I, I narrowly avoided writing a single line version of that and just putting it on screen so I could see it happen. Just so I had some sort of visual reflection of the work that was occurring. Yeah. I also have the, the most recent line showing up in the header of that widget. But when it's open, it disappears and just shows it at the bottom. But when you close it, it just goes back to showing the most recent item. So I, I think we need to hard code some values in there as well. So right now, if I can, if I pick a DDR original and then pick a new DDR and hit begin completion or begin comparison, nothing happens. I can see that something's happening, but my DDRs are still processing. And I can see the console log where the begin comparison has been queued, but it would be nice to actually receive a message as soon as I click that button that the process has been queued, the comparison has been been queued or added to the queue, or waiting on DDR parsing or something like that. Yeah, right now the parser is the thing that generates all of the messages, but there's no particular reason why it can't generate one immediately. Like, yeah, I, I actually send you back a confirmation that the process has started so that the UI can be updated. Technically, you could do it, but it makes more sense for me to do it so all the message updates come out of the back end. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Make an issue. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of work then also in kind of expanding the way change reporting works. Um, when you've got a pair of elements that have been connected and 
we now need to see what has changed about them. I had written a whole process that kind of generated an array of, well, these are the things that changed, and here's kind of some faked-in items in that array that can be used to create section headers. And it was very, very thin and totally not handing to Joe the information he needed to be able to render a meaningful UI. So I added a couple of extra properties there that would say, this is a header row. This is a row that's displaying a property that has changed, and here's the two values. And this is a row that's displaying a property for something that didn't change. Yeah, so what, what did Dave had handed me previously was kind of, in FileMaker terms, say you've got a contact base, or contact database with a thousand records, and he gave me just enough information for me to write a conditional formatting line that says, is this record Dave? Is this record Dave? Is this record Dave? <laughs> like basically looking for every record, say, is this one Dave yet? Because if it's not, then I don't care yet. But then he actually made some new properties that I can actually say, give me the name. Like, I don't care. I don't need to switch on Dave anymore. So, um, that's cool, but there's some weird stuff. Like, the original version of the code threw away any line where a change wasn't indicated. Mm -hmm. But now that we're working in this card interface in particular, it kind of makes sense to be able to optionally display the things that didn't so you can see the line that changed kind of in context, which is helpful. But now I'm actually looking that I probably need to run all of this code for all the items that didn't change. Because right now, if you just added a field, I get a, I hand Joe a thing that just goes, hey, there's a new field. It has this name. And it's nice and all, but you might want to see what it is. It's kind of a, uh, an issue in the different use cases. If you're using the diff to migrate changes between two copies of your system, you really just need the header information and, you know, click a copy button, throw that thing into the clipboard and paste it into FileMaker. But if you are doing this for a code review, I'd like to be able to see the calculation definition for the calculation field that got added. I need the more detail. And so I've got to kind of wire that code up. The cool part is it's nicely abstracted, so it won't be a problem. But um, yeah, more, more data crunching, which is fun. <laughs> so we mentioned working with the Vuex store. And one of the things I did yesterday morning and today a little bit was feel really overwhelmed by the Vuex store and then looked up how to uh, not necessarily clean up the code, but get all the code in the same place. So because like the way the, the store is structured, you've got basically a state object, getter object, uh, mutations object and an actions object as well as modules and a couple other ones that but these are you basically you've got these big blobs of stuff and we ended up with this store file that's already getting a couple thousand lines of code and it, it made it hard to work on the same logical problem like I'm working on one feature but I'm scrolling this document back and forth and I keep losing my place in the list and all of the signatures look very similar, so i got to make sure I'm editing the right one. So I wanted to kind of break this up into separate files, which I haven't done yet, but I did break it up into separate modules. So a module is basically just another store that has those same top-level objects, so the state, the getters, the mutators, and the actions. And you can give it a name, and then with the parent store, or the root store, you have a modules object and you just give it a list of what modules you're using and you can give them additional oh, names. There. Okay. So <laughs> I looked at the code Joe was editing. It was like, I see where all the pieces are, but I can't figure out where they talk to each other. Yeah, it's all at the very bottom of the documents in the modules section. That's what ties oh, them all together. Okay. And the default behavior, which is what we're using right now, is that the modules 
they they each have their own separate namespace um but we're not using namespaces for anything except for state so if i make a a property in state that says you know is dark mode enabled as a boolean and that's in one of those modules i've got to reference that by its module name first before going straight to the state but for the getters and the actions and mutations i don't need to do that those are automatically going to basically be appended to the same namespace as the top level or root level uh, container so it in terms of the ui i didn't have to change anything for all those places where we're referencing getters and actions throughout the code it was really anything that was referencing the store directly i just went ahead and made a getter for that when i moved it into its own module so there's there's a couple other i'll have to check but it's we if we need to we can actually enforce namespacing for those modules as well and say you always have to access the configuration module through the configuration namespace but by default we don't have to i thought that was kind of a cleaner way to go so this let me clean things up into their own little kind of code chunk so i could at least scroll a one portion of the document and work on that as i'm working on these problems but i haven't figured out and this is because i'm just not that great of a web developer how do i just put this up in separate files without vs code barking at me and es linter showing all kinds of errors uh, i haven't figured that part out yet i thought it would just be simple enough of like let me copy the module into a file and import it but i'm missing something because it didn't like that very much. Yeah, so that also explains why there was a couple of spots where there was a state property, and then there was a getter for that that just returned it. And I was like, Joe, why mm -hmm. are you doing that? Yeah. Um, my temptation is to suggest, though not require, that we just go ahead and namespace all of it. Um, it'll get rid of all of those kind of redundant getters, which will reduce the code that you have to write pretty significantly. Um, and just that's part of the thing is you have to know which part of the state you're going to, mm -hmm. which part of the getters. I mean, I, I realize that the way you did it changed as little of the code as possible, but um, I don't know, just an idea. Yeah, it makes, it, it, it makes more sense to namespace them if they're going to be living in separate files. I yeah. think, but if they're going to stay in the same file in the same place, it's basically just a way of concatenating multiple things together. You still end up with a single store. Yeah. Any way you slice it, this code is dramatically easier to look at. Yeah. It's uh, easier to work with when you're working on a specific mm -hmm. feature because you can get you know the state property and the getter and the mutator on screen at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which is what I was after, mostly. I guess some of the other stuff that we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, syncing the incoming messages with, you know, the progress bars, writing out the percentages in the bars, uh, the log viewer, that type of stuff. I wanted to talk about lifecycle a little bit and see, I haven't really spent too much time thinking about this yet, but I saw you had subbed out some functions, but really thinking about in terms of like, what is the life cycle of a configuration for a comparison and what are all of the what are the available options for canceling stuff like we've if i've opened fm comparison and i selected diff and then i select another diff what state am i in and do we need to be keeping track of a single state or multiple states and then the same thing when we're beginning the comparison is there some kind of flag that says we are currently running a comparison in addition to the logging things like that it's it just seems like one of those problems that could, even if we don't code anything, it would be good to reason through all the various states that this thing can get itself into and making sure that we're accounting for all the edge cases and things that users could abort. Or, you know, if they, uh -huh. if I hit, if I pick two DDRs, hit begin comparison, and then immediately swap out one of the DDRs, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing good? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, sounds like a good time for a finite state diagram. Yeah, or I close the window, or open a new window. Mm -hmm. 
some of that stuff is getting tracked well, and some of it isn't. And you're right that this is pretty much the time, if not well past the time, to map all of that out and make sure we've got every case covered. Um, I think there's even a couple of spots where, depending upon how garbage collection works, if you close the window, the last process may literally complete running before it kills all of its memory. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm spitting these off as separate threads. And so that may well leave an independent thread out there consuming RAM and processor that doesn't need to be there anymore. And so if we really map it out, I can make sure that when the UI says, okay, now we're doing something else, the back end will also reflect that. So the other question when we're figuring out state is what happens when we have successfully completed the comparison? Do we navigate somewhere? Do we stay where we are and show a navigation button or show a message or open the log or show some stats? Or do we immediately navigate to the three-column interface? Um, Yeah, it's just kind of what do we want that to do next? Yeah, my temptation is to suggest that we go ahead and navigate, but there's also the fact that if that process generated errors, yeah, that's the we need to stay on that screen, and we don't yet. I mean, I've got the ability to send a update that says here's an error message, but I don't have anything that responds to that in any meaningful way. If it does pause there and say there was an error, how does the user then get to, like, no, 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 I don't care about that error. Please go ahead and show me my results. And, yeah. So we've got three different things then. We can we either have successfully compared the DDRs and are ready to show data. We have successfully completed it with errors, but the errors are minor enough that we can still present real data or we've failed and we don't have anything to show you. Right. So I think with that scenario, I think we should stay on the same screen on all three scenarios and in the latter to enable a navigation button next to the begin mm. comparison button. And that okay. button can just be there all the time, but just be disabled if they haven't configured a DDR or if it's failed. So they can't click it and navigate to somewhere that leaves them in a, Mm-hmm. A broken state. A but view think, results button or something like that. Yeah. Um, I like it. it. It adds one more button click. But particularly at the beginning of the app, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be important. Um, we may also need something that will indicate, like... Right now, we've got a place for displaying errors for file selection. I don't know if that's the place that also needs to say, one of these three processes had an error. Mm -hmm. We need some sort of reflection. Like, we're generating three separate logs. Mm -hmm. And, well, okay, there was an error in one of them. Do we need to highlight that log or retain those error messages in a different place? Mm -hmm. Or something like that. So somebody, you know, even if we're generating good information for them, then presenting that information becomes a challenge yeah. in a meaningful, actionable manner. Yeah, and we don't necessarily have to stay on the configuration screen for these three result types. We could navigate to kind of an intermediary screen that's going to be reporting our log entries for any errors and then have a, you know, go back to configuration or go forward to the data based on the outcome that we end up with. So it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a, the same screen. It could be a third screen. I like it. A lot more screen real estate on a whole new screen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of brings up like, as soon as I hit begin comparison, do we go straight there or do we wait for the, the, uh, the files to complete? It's like you're inside my head, Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, dedicate a whole screen to the progress bar and logs, and then that's where we put a more explicit cancel button that has to generate messages to the back end. Um, yeah, 
we'll have to sit down and talk about that and figure out what needs to be on that screen. Um, cause I think that screen ends up a little thin mm-hmm. in some cases, but I like it. So you, uh, you started working with my JSON. <laughs> I did. <clears throat> so up until this point, um, when you selected a category, so you've completed the diff and you're now looking at the results and you say, show me the diffed fields. You've completed the diff and you're looking at the results and saying, okay, show me the changed fields. When you said, show me the changed fields, it would send a massive chunk of XML to the interface. And that was the list of all the items that had changed. But because the old interface had a very wide table for displaying that stuff, it had to send a bunch of data that isn't necessary for actually rendering that list. It was nice because then in the interface, if you said, show me details about this item, it already had the information. There was no additional round trip necessary. It just had to say, okay, hand the detail view this single record of JSON, um, which was nice, but boy, that's sending a lot of data. Um, and I was having a problem because there's really nice, simple code for saying, here is a class in the back end that stores the data, just a great big array about all the items that we're comparing, convert that into JSON, and it just goes. It takes every single property, and there's some little uh, property decorations that you can add in, little bits of code that say, whenever you're doing a JSON conversion, don't hand over this data. It's really complicated, or it's not useful to the UI, don't hand this over. But what I really wanted to do was be able to generate two completely independent JSON exports from this single class definition. And boy, that turned out to be a pain in the butt. Looking at lots and lots of code, it was four, maybe six hours of research. Because this is a thing that's been popping into my head every couple of weeks for the last four months. Mm -hmm. Of just, how am I going to do this? And every time I looked for something, nobody had something that did just what I wanted. Um, or even gave me a solid idea of how to get there. Like, there was an example that was like, only grab the properties that begin with the letter A. Oh, God. Not, not helping me. It's this big, complicated, functional programming monstrosity. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. I want to be able to pick five fields and just generate that as JSON. The right way, the, the application-specific way. There were a lot of terrible ways that I could have done it. I wanted to do it the right way and optimally the fastest way. Yeah. And so, I'm sorry? So, let me just take a guess in terms of what I know about Swift. The Swift way, from what I understand, is you've got your base class or struct, and we would map it to a new struct that is codable. So if say I've got 15 properties and I really only want five of them, I make a struct with the five properties that I want. I make that conform to the codable protocols. And then I do some kind of mapping operation with my array of, or collection of the big blobby ones into the small clean ones. And then I serialize those objects. So that's a, totally adequate answer um that would have worked the problem is kind of uh ram consumption mm. is i've got the original list of fat elements and then i've got a new list of thin elements and then i'm generating the string of all of them combined so i'm effectively tripling i'm not totally tripling the data because the thin one is way thinner but I've got to kind of manually process each of those things as part of that, even if I do it in kind of a functional map sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the way it ends up working is the JavaScript library that I'm using is a streaming JSON writer. And so you just hand it a chunk of code that sits there as a filter as it's 
turning the big batch directly into JSON and just says, if you're not this, don't bother. Hmm. And effectively, what I ended up using was that code that says only grab properties that begin with the letter A and started from there and said, well, it's looking at the property name and from that applying some logic to decide whether it should include this property or not, I can adjust this code to do what I need it to do. And so ended up with just handing it a list of property names that I wanted and comparing the property to, or, or the current property that's being looked at by the streaming writer and going, nope, or yes. Works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty maintainable. Very, very fast. It's one of the nice things about trying to do these, these streaming things is they can be disgustingly performant. Um, my first version had indirection. And this is one of those spots where having been a FileMaker developer has made me so rabidly resistant to, you know, putting the names of properties in a string and using that to do the comparison. Mm-hmm. And so after I'd written that and I had proved that it worked, I then went back and went, okay, what's the code to hand it a, a real reference to a property and then say, just give me the name of this. And lots of sample code. People have been dealing with this problem for years and years and years in C plus or C sharp. And you look down the kind of stack overflow list and fairly far down towards the bottom is somebody who just goes, Hey, by the way, in C sharp six, they added a function to do exactly that. It's just name of open paren, close paren. <laughs> Jeez. Okay. So it's still really simple, maintainable code. It's very understandable. And if I ever rename any of those properties, the compiler will tell me that I've broken a reference. So indirection fixed. Um, and then there was wiring it up. So in the interface, as I said, it had a great big chunk of JSON. And when you went to the detail view, all it had to do was grab an item off the list and display it. Well, now the items on the list have five properties. So grabbing that item and displaying it in the detail view is not going to provide you enough information. And so had to add a, a signal passing loop that says, Hey, I need the information about this record. And it passes that off to the back end. It generates the full JSON and hands that back to the front end. Um, the good news is I basically wired that up months ago mm-hmm. and just commented it out waiting for when I actually needed it. Nice. So that's cool. So we're not handing over a ton of data that we don't need until we need it. So the only other big problem was uh, dealing with encoding JSON strings. Mm-hmm. And I cannot for the life of me figure out why this is obnoxious as it is. Um, in my head, JSON is a standard of some kind. And if I generate JSON in C-sharp and hand it to a JavaScript JSON parser, mm-hmm. that should work. Turns out it totally doesn't. <laughs> Using the most popular JSON writing library in C-sharp. It's a JSON.net made by a company called Newtonsoft. Um, I can totally produce an invalid JSON string. On. I, I can't figure out why. <laughs> it, it honestly doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, I, this, this should work. And the problem is that people put funny things in the names of FileMaker objects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're putting parentheses and greater thans and double quotes and things like that in script names and in uh, table occurrence, uh, relationship diagram note areas and things like that. And it was just, you know, the bigger the data set, the more likely I was to bump into something that I would 
produce what it thought was well-formed JSON, hand it up to the interface, and the interface would puke. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, we're going to need a message for. Because <laughs> it's still going to happen. Um, I've, I've written some pretty darn good code for catching it, but I know from FM Perception that people are very, very um, efficient at generating code that doesn't work in other environments. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, something that says blah, and then on top of that, gives me the ability to maybe produce like a one-button-click email message that can include that JSON. So they can go, hey, this didn't work. And I don't have to go, hey, can you send me your diffs? So, uh, what else you been working on, Joe? So, uh, work isn't the right word. (laughs) But I had a bit of a VR relapse. Oh, no. So, uh... What what did you do? Well, in the fall, I got rid of most of my VR headsets. In fact, I got rid of all of them. And then a month later, I got a PlayStation VR. Because I missed (laughs) it. And then... You know, I was kind of satisfied with that for a while. And then at some point became dissatisfied with only that and really missed having the Oculus Go. So I bought another one about three weeks ago. Of course you did. Yeah, of course I did. So, and of course, this is, you know, the the world we live in. I can just decide I want a VR headset and have it brought to me in an hour, which is also what I did. <laughs> and then uh a friend of mine bought my Oculus Quest last fall. So I sent him a very Joe-like message You're like, "Hey, uh you want to sell that back if you're not using it?" And he said no, but he would let me borrow it indefinitely. Basically without saying until you change your mind. Um <laughs> So I've got that. I've been using the Oculus Go, you know, for more recreational stuff like watching videos and light gaming and using the Quest for more physical gaming, playing Beat Saber and a game called Pistol Whip, which is another kind of exercise game, but it's imagine like a endless runner, fast-paced first-person shooter where you have to dodge bullets, kind of like super hot, and uh, it's very, very physically active. You end up—it's basically half an hour of pistol whip is like the equivalent of doing like, I don't know, fifteen hundred squats. Like, yeah, <laughs> it sounds great, Joe. It's pretty intense, and um, you know, I haven't made anything in VR yet. I did spend some time playing around with web VR a little bit. And last week Dave and I went to VR Columbus to check out the demo with Oculus Quest hand tracking. And it was something that Dave said, you know, kind of under his breath while we were there. Uh, I'll paraphrase something along the lines of you know way too much about VR development to not be doing VR development. And that kind of that it wasn't quite what I said. <laughs> or or maybe it was what I said, but it wasn't what I meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe, so you have to understand, Joe hasn't been doing VR development, but there are people in the audience coming up with technical questions that are very specific about explicit versions of operating systems applied to particular VR headsets. And Joe has the answer every single time to decimal points in the version numbers. And he's not doing VR development. I was pointing it out as an interesting curiosity, not a, you should totally be doing VR development. Mm. Apparently that wasn't the way it was heard. No. (laughs) Sorry? Yeah, so, I don't know. A lot of what I said last fall and with my article over the summer about this stuff kind of still holds true. Like, I don't really have any winning ideas um, in terms of platforms. I think really the only one worth trying to publish on is Oculus Quest, and it's also the most difficult one to publish on. So I haven't really done anything with it. I also don't think I'm ever really going to be a great game developer. 
And, uh, you know, I think I've got stronger skills under the application world, like making, solving the kind of problems that we just spent an hour talking about. But I was watching a YouTube video about Wii Sports earlier today, and they got to the bowling segment. And I, I remembered I made a bowling game about two years ago. And my bowling game was a little bit better than what I was seeing in this video. So I went and found the, some of the YouTube videos, and I'll throw a link in the description for the, uh, the, you know, the one-minute-long promo video that I had made. And I'm thinking, is it worth making a demo of that? I've still got all the code for it. I've got all the Unity assets. And I'm wondering if it's worth kind of getting that out of mothballs and making an Oculus Quest demo of it to submit as a pitch for the Oculus Store or as a pitch to the Oculus Start program. And really thinking about, like, if that if I were to make that a game, what kind of game would it be? Because the, the one thing that I can, was interesting about this was it's a VR bowling game, but you're not playing traditional bowling. It's more of, like, wave-based shooters coming <laughs> at you in waves. So it's uh, I would need to come up with, like, using the bowling alley mechanics, but in a totally different way. So getting rid of some of the the rules of how scoring works. Um, adding out, adding timeouts, adding where things spawn, and particularly with Quest not having any wires attached, really giving you a full 360 experience of like, you know, lanes and pins showing up all around you at different points in time. Um, so I think there's potential there for a a fun gameplay experience. The other stuff that goes with it, like music and assets, would be a lot more challenging which I don't think I'm even really going to spend much time considering if I make the demo. So I guess if I did this, what it would involve would be basically commenting out all of the Steam VR uh, input code that's in the project, importing the Oculus SDK, and getting the same stuff working with the Oculus SDK, which should be relatively straightforward. Um, and then getting that working on the headsets and seeing if it needs to be optimized for the mobile hardware. Maybe uh, dumb down the assets a little bit and make it look more like a prototype using more prototype-ish assets. And then uh, come up with some kind of pitch document for Oculus or Oculus Start. So Oculus Start is their program to help developers. It's kind of their their um, development program where they kind of work with small companies and developers to make stuff. And from what I understand, that's the best place to start if you're going to actually try to publish on their platforms. And then there's some other ideas. There's other markets. There's a third-party, very unofficial distribution channel called SideQuest, where if you, you can basically sideload content onto your quest if you put it into development mode. And there's also the you know, make it for PSVR or make it for, I don't really want to make it for PC VR because then I'd have to have a PC. But <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Is it, is it worth spending some hobby time on? Yes. You should totally do it. Um, I, it hasn't yet turned into something money-making or businessy, mm -hmm. but my sense is that regardless of how frustrating it was trying to make something fun and dynamic in VR, it's, it's simpler than it looks and more complicated than it looks mm -hmm. simultaneously. But... No matter how hard it was, my sense was that you enjoyed it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a good challenge, um, and yeah, I think you should do it. Yeah, I think why I'm thinking about this particular project is because this was the one thing that was actually fun. Like it was, it was fun to put somebody in this headset, and they enjoyed the little you know five minute demo that I made, and I had probably. 200 people try it in the course of two weeks. And then I just kind of 
decided that it wasn't good enough as a project, as a commercial project, and decided to start working on way harder stuff. And that's the stuff that ended up frustrating me. Yeah. I'm, I, as you've been talking, my brain has been kind of running through really accentuating the wave shooter elements mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I, 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 I think you should give it a shot. The, the worst thing that can happen is they go, nah, not interested. Yeah. And if I, you know, what I come up with maybe, you know, maybe possible to just, you know, compile out a, a web VR open GL version of it and just throw it on my website because unity can publish from a unity project to a really giant blob of HTML5. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that may be a good way to do the demo. Yeah. Well, and, and unlike the iOS app store, you don't have to write the whole thing to its final version before they reject you. Yeah. That's, people complain about the Oculus policy around the quest. And I understand some of the complaints, mm-hmm. but they're also really clear, like, you should contact us right away. Don't start <laughs> on your project. Like, you know, write up a pitch document. We'll talk it over with you. We'll tell you whether or not we think it's a good fit. And, uh, you know, if they say we think it's a good fit, that doesn't mean you're approved. That means no. you can start working on it. We'll, we'll talk to you again. Yeah. But, yeah. It's an interesting process. I, I think you should do it if for no other reason it will make good content for the show. Yeah. 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 Well, at some point in the next couple of weeks, I'll find my old project and uh, download it. And it, it'll be fun going through, I think it's been, you know, eight Unity versions since that project was last opened. So that part will be interesting. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll see what I can get together between now and the next episode. See if I can get something fun or give up on it completely between now and then. We'll see. <laughs> Either of those are fine, Joe. 